Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Well, amen. It is finished. Christ has completed the work, and I hope you're enjoying that. But if you are not yet enjoying it by faith in Christ, then perhaps today will be the day of salvation for you. That is, that is my hope, my prayer. Um, there's a section in that song where Paul becomes a rapper, and uh, I don't know how he gets through it. There's got to be somewhere in there that he breathes but I haven't figured out where to take that breath. And so at the end of that long run, I'm like gasping for air. And uh, I enjoy losing my breath for Jesus, losing my breath in the praise of the one who gives me life and breath and health and vitality. And I just, I'm so thankful uh, for that song and the truth uh, that God has accomplished in Christ, what we could never accomplish for ourselves. And we need to believe that. We need to, to find our hope in that. And so we're going to find our, our way in Psalm 131. Psalm 131 this morning. As I speak on the subject of quiet trust, the Lord is our hope. So if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, just make your way to Psalm 131. And as you turn there, I want to remind you, in case you had forgotten, today is the last day of 2023. Most of you probably were aware of that, if not it is. Tomorrow's 2024. And some here this morning, I suspect, can't wait to have 23 in the rear view mirror. Life's brought challenges, sickness, separation, sadness. You've experienced the loss of a, a loved one, a dear friend, a good job. For others, 23, it's been pretty amazing. It's been one of the best years of your life. You got married you renewed an old friendship, had a baby, finally got that promotion or that raise that is now giving you some financial breathing room. And so as you look to 24, you're like, ah, 23 is pretty good. So maybe you're just waiting for that proverbial shoe to drop and you're a bit nervous heading into 24. You see, we're often driven to the heights of happiness and the depths of despair by our circumstances. But I want to suggest, and the Bible suggests, there's a, a different way of looking at life and of living life. I want to suggest from Psalm 131 the perspective of one who has learned to hope in the Lord and to rest in the Lord in a message that I'm calling Quiet Trust, the Lord is our hope. And in this passage, we're going to see the perspective of someone who has learned to live not in spite of their circumstances or even in light of their circumstances, but instead to live above their circumstances. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord? A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. 
Would you pray with me? And God, our Father in heaven, help us today to not just read a psalm, not just understand it mentally, but God, by your spirit to be instructed in our spirit such that we would truly hope in the Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This psalm is a song of ascent. There are 15 such psalms in the Psalter, or the book of the Psalms. To ascend means simply to go up. In the Old Testament, it often refers to going up to worship. Some scholars suggest that the songs were like a a hymnal within the hymnal, sung by Israelites as they made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feasts of pilgrimage, Passover weeks and tabernacles as required by Deuteronomy 16, 16. The temple is, is in Jerusalem, right? And to go to Jerusalem, you have to go up. It's elevated around everything that is around it. Others suggest the songs may have originally been sung by the the Levites in the dedication of Solomon's temple as they ascended the, the steps. In either case, we suspect these, these hymns, these psalms, were sung to prepare God's people to worship the Lord. Songs of going up. And while God is present everywhere, He's above us, He's below us, He's all around us, there's no place that He is not, He's omnipresent, while this is true, it is appropriate for us to think of worshiping God as, as going up because God is God. And as God, He is above all. He is holy. He alone is creator. He's the only uncreated being in the universe or anywhere. Everything that exists, exists because God exists. If God did not exist, nothing seen or unseen would exist. In this sense, God is above all, and we go up to worship Him. Theologians refer to this upness, overness of God as His transcendence. He is the highest, greatest, most beautiful, most powerful, most glorious, all-wise, perfectly good, righteous, loving, and creator God. And the message of Christmas that we've just celebrated, right, is that God came down He's so good, He's so great, He's so holy. The only way for our hearts to commune with the one that we were made to commune with was for God to come down to us. But Christmas, interestingly enough, is not the first time that God came down. In Genesis chapter 11, He came down. You remember that story? He came down to show us that we can't succeed in lifting ourselves up to behold the glory that is God's alone. Being with God is not something that humanity can achieve, but something we must receive. Do you remember the story in Genesis 11? It is there that we find a world so incredibly advanced in its civilization that the people come together to build a tower at the city of Babel to reach to the heavens, not so that they can commune with the Lord of heaven, but so that they can make a name for themselves, Genesis 11.4. Do you remember the story? And if you recall, the project does not end well for them because the Lord, after they get the tower up into the sky, the Lord comes down to see the city and their tower. Do you, do you feel the irony? They build this enormous tower into the sky, but they had no hope of ever reaching the Most High God who dwells in the unseen heavens. God put an end to their building project and confused their languages and dispersed them all over the world. 
We see God reversing that and in Acts 2 at Pentecost when people from all nations hear the gospel in their own tongues. But, but for now, let's trace the story of Genesis 11. The world is, is scattered into their own languages, in their own territories, but this desire to make a name for ourselves remained ingrained in every sin-tainted and sin-tattered heart. People kept trying to build their own towers. We see it all over the world, don't we? Sociologists are like, why does everyone try to worship something? Why, why don't people just be people and act like there's no God and there's nothing to worship? Because you were made to worship. And until you find the one who's worthy of your worship, you're restless and you keep trying to find something. And so the whole of humanity, the the testimony of humanity, it's littered with idols down through the generations. People fashion gods in their own image rather than worshiping the Lord who made us to faithfully bear His image. People worshiped then as they do now wealth and fertility and fame and leisure and prosperity and entertainment and enlightenment and escapism and knowledge and education and career and power and sexual freedom and the list goes on and on and on. I grew up in an era that seemed to celebrate or idolize open-mindedness. It, it, it seemed that it was celebrated most often by people who closed their minds at the outset to even the possibility that God exists. I'm so open-minded. I mean, I know God doesn't exist, but otherwise I'm pretty open-minded. Open-mindedness was really just a way for many of saying I'm rejecting God and using a word to make me feel good about it. I'm open-minded. Sure, I've rejected truth, but I will delude myself and dull my conscience by making myself think that I'm open to truth. And really, such people are just building their own towers. They're more interested in the quest for truth than in ever finding truth. They like the pursuit, but they don't want answers because answers mean they're accountable. Paul writes about such people in 2 Timothy 3.7. They're always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Eventually, beloved, whether it's the Tower of Babel or any other tower that we build with our own hands or with our own minds to prop ourselves up, the tower will fall. And everyone who trusts in a tower of their own making will fall with it. Such towers must fall. And they will surely fail us. Why? We were made to be satisfied not by exalting ourselves or anything less than God or even in having a great 2024. We were made to be satisfied in the Lord. And in this psalm, Davis shows us a hope, a confidence, a contentment that is otherworldly and enduring. It is a hope that doesn't depend on life's ups and downs, but it is a hope anchored in the Lord. Only the Lord can satisfy in an ultimate sense. And the first thing that, jo that, G <coughs> excuse me, the first thing that David shows us is to, to have this soul satisfaction that comes in the Lord alone. Verse 1, we must come to the Lord in total humility. We must come in total humility. Notice how David approaches the Lord, not with any tower construction plans in hand. He doesn't come to God and say, God, you know, you and me would make a great team. Let me tell you about all the things that I have to offer to you, God. He doesn't say, Lord, I'm bringing you my hopes and dreams of success for 2024 or any other year so that you might just sort of bless them and make them your own. 
comes to the Lord with this totality of dependency. Look at his train of thought in verse 1. He's not, he's not exalted or prideful in heart, but he's, he's humble in heart and eyes and walk. First he says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. David, the youngest of eight sons of Jesse, is just a shepherd boy from the little town of Bethlehem, but he's anointed by Samuel to be the son who would eventually replace King Saul. And yet, though he knows God has chosen him to be king, he remains humble in heart. Even after the Lord works through David to kill Goliath and deliver the Israelites from the Philistines, David doesn't say, look at me, everybody. Instead, he remains humble in heart. Even after the Excuse me, but why would David's concern be humility? Why would his concern be having a, a humble heart before the Lord? Here's why. A heart that is, is lifted up, that is proud, cannot commune with the Lord most high. It is the Lord who is to be exalted and our hearts that are to be low. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, not proud in spirit, Jesus said. David needs the Lord infinitely more than he needs to be king So he seeks to be humble in the place that matters in his heart. He's motivated not by pride or fame or status, but by communion with his God. The sort of pride that hinders our relationship with the Lord is a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from our own achievements, our own knowledge or qualities or attributes or possessions. Proverbs 18.12 says, Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, But humility comes before honor. In a world of selfies and self-promotion, how in the world can we cultivate a humble heart? I love what Paul says to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 4-7. They're they're having some arguments about who they're going to follow and who's the greatest. And This is what Paul says. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you didn't receive? Well, I worked hard for that. Where'd you get the ability to work hard? What do you have that you didn't receive? And the answer, the implied answer, it's a rhetorical question, but the answer is nothing. There's nothing I have that God didn't give me the ability to get or to go after. I have nothing that is a credit to me. It is all a credit to God who gave it. And then he follows up, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Everything you have is a gift. Everything you have is a blessing. David illustrates the the beautiful simplicity of not running ahead of God, but of wholly submitting to Him. He could have tried manipulating his way to the throne. Saul was a horrible king. He didn't deserve it. He could have tried ridiculing others on his way to the throne. He could have tried any number of pride-filled ways of pursuing his own glory and his own time and his own way. But he understands that all this would be pointless if he lost communion with the king of kings seeking to be king in the process. Even when Saul has become a terrible man trying to destroy David, he refuses to let pride or bitterness seize his heart. Longman writes this, on two occasions David has the opportunity to take Saul out, seize the kingship, but instead he waits on God's timing. David is not like a little Simba from the Lion King. You remember Simba and the Lion King? He's, he finds out he's going to be king and he's filled with this youthful pride and he sings, I just can't wait to be king. 
I'm going to be a mighty king, so enemies beware. To which Zazu replies, well, I've never seen a king of beasts with quite so little hair. Then Simba sings, I'm going to be the main event like no king was before. I'm brushing up on looking down. And the king, the song ends with Simba singing, oh, I just can't wait to be king. David saw things differently. King or not, he didn't want to live apart from the king of kings. Simba was brushing up on looking down, but David says, my eyes, do you see it in verse 1, are not raised too high. I'm not looking at the next thing. I'm just living with the Lord and trusting Him every step of the way. In Psalm 18, 27, David said it this way, You save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. So David, even in difficult times, doesn't take his eye off the Lord and seek his own glory. He doesn't set his gaze on gaining status or position. He doesn't look around at others to make himself feel superior. He doesn't look to possessions or accomplishments as symbols of his own superiority. His focus is cultivating and keeping a humble heart before the God Most High, which leads him to have eyes that are not fixated on worldly pleasures or possessions or position but instead on the satisfaction which comes from communing with the Lord alone. David is humble in heart and he's not looking around for the next best thing because he already knows and delights in the best thing, God himself. And then David adds this at the end of verse 1. I love this. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Literally, he says, I don't walk in or live in things too great and too marvelous or wonderful or difficult for me. In other words, David is resolved to be undistracted in his pursuit of the Lord. David's going to stay in his lane. Some people are so distracted trying to chase down every other question and every other answer rather than just live with God. He, He doesn't get caught up in the rat race of what everyone else has what everyone else does or thinks. And if you serve the Lord in humility, by the way, not everybody's going to see it that way. Not everybody's going to understand, like, me and the Lord are good. When, when David takes food to his brothers in the front lines of the battle with the Philistines, he's there to bring them food. And he sees this knucklehead Goliath taunting the Israelites, and the Israelites cowering in fear, and David begins to have this thought like, well, what happens if we take that guy out? Well, there's going to be a reward. It's going to be great. And So David's starting to concoct this plan of like, I'm going to take this guy out. I mean, this is is stupid. We're the people of God. They're our enemies. This is dumb. And his oldest brother, Eliab, still hasn't shaken the jealousy, right? What is it? Do you remember what Eliab says? This is before David kills Goliath, before he goes back, and then he comes back to the line and kills Goliath. But David's beginning to brainstorm what this must look like, or could look like. And he says to David, in the presumption and evil of your heart, you've come to see the battle. That is mind-blowing. David came to feed his brother, and his brother says, 
you're just presumptive and evil. And no, David's not at all. He's cultivating a humble heart. He's there to, to bless God's people. And yet somebody's still going to accuse him of being arrogant and presumptive and puffed up. So don't think if you're a godly person pursuing the heart of God that everybody's going to see you that way. But at the end of the day, what does David pay attention to? He cares about what God thinks. He doesn't play the comparison game. He's not coveting someone else's life. He's living the life that God has given him, and he's doing it in pursuit of the Lord that gave him the life that he has in the first place. That is real life. He doesn't have to have a shiny new truck because his neighbor does. He doesn't have to impress people. His dirty old sheep in fields near Bethlehem will suit him just fine. When Saul starts going crazy, He plays the harp for the man that wants to kill him without complaining about it. To have a humble heart is to be under the Lord's authority and under the authority of others that God places in our lives. These are the words of a man who wants the Lord more than anything. He's not preoccupied with greatness or accomplishments. One pastor summarizes it like this. The proud person looks, compares, and competes and is never content. He plans and schemes in his heart as to how he can outdo and outperform, and he is always restless. Augustine once said, O Lord, you've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. What's going to make for a great 2024 for you? What do you want for a great 24? Is it more money? Is it more sleep? Amen. It is, is it more date nights? Hallelujah. Is it less sickness? Is it a promotion? These are all great things, but they don't satisfy our restless hearts. Have you lived long enough yet to discover that's true? Only a humble heart that exits the rat race and communes with our Creator can rest. That's where satisfaction is found. And in verse 2, David shows us that if we're going to have that soul-satisfying communion with a sovereign God, secondly, we've got to stop fretting and start having a childlike faith. In verse 2, we see that David, rather than living restlessly, trying to manipulate or angle or one-up his way through life, rather than evaluating his life based on its ups and downs, he has calmed and quieted his soul. He's tuned out distractions, and turned wholeheartedly to the Lord. Calmed means stilled or composed or focused. His soul is settled because it's focused, it's undistracted. And his desire and focus are the Lord. His ambition is to know and enjoy the Lord. When we get to that place, so much of what burdens us seems so much lighter. When we commune with the Lord so much of the distractions we tune them out they're not that big of a deal anymore so much of what we spend our time fretting about suddenly seems rather petty David has also quieted his soul through his humble pursuit of the Lord's presence quieted means to be silenced or to find rest David says in Psalm 62 1 for God alone my soul waits in silence from him comes my salvation. Have you ever just been quiet to get away with the Lord? That's why 
Have you ever heard of a quiet time? Where does that idea come from? It comes from passages like Psalm 131. I just gotta, I gotta break the routine, I gotta break away, I gotta create a space for quiet communion with my God, and I'm gonna wait on Him in silence because there's nothing greater than communion with God. Where are you seeking salvation? What are you chasing to settle your soul? These are questions we must ask and answer. Is it more of something? Is it less of something? Is it adventure? Is it the quest for something new and always being disappointed in the end? So many people spend their lives chasing answers only to end up dissatisfied with the answer, so they chase more answers and ignore Jesus the whole way. The answer is found in knowing and in loving and enjoying God alone. And here's some good news. When, when you find God, when you commune with God, when you connect with God, the quest is never over. Some of you are like, I like the quest. I don't just want an answer. I want the quest. Well, good news. When you get God, you get His presence. There's always more to get to know of an infinite creator God. The quest is never over. So you get the answer and you get the quest. With everything else, you get the quest that never leads to the answer. So why don't you trust in the one who is the answer and spend the rest of eternity on a quest to know more of this good God? That's what David says in Psalm 1611. Lord, make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. He's found fullness of joy in the presence of the Lord. But it's not like that's the end of joy. Because then he says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You just keep giving me more and more and more of you. What a good God we have. But what does it look like to have a calm and quiet trust in the Lord? David says it looks like a child and his mother. The child is weaned, so he has passed, moms, you'll appreciate this, the the freak out every time I'm hungry stage of infancy, and now he confidently relies on his mom. And when I say he confidently relies on his mom, I, I mean he hardly has a care in the world. Why? Because of his relationship with his mother. That's my mom. She's got this. Not there's a mom out there somewhere, but that's my mom. It's not good enough that there's a God out there somewhere. That God's got to be your God, and you can't have that God as your God unless you rest and trust in this God. And this child who's, who's become weaned, he just knows mom's got him. As Longman writes, Davis, David gives us a picture of the kind of trustful confidence that David now experiences. And i got to tell you, as a dad, I'm amazed to think back on my childhood, and to realize how much I didn't have to think about. Have you ever thought about that now that you're an adult? What you didn't have to think about? It's mind-blowing. It's incredible what I didn't have to think about. Like, I never once wondered, are my socks going to be clean for the next basketball game? I didn't think about it. Mom, Mom handled that. I never worried if I would eat dinner. Mom handled that. Whenever we got to take a vacation, I didn't worry about what clothes I would wear or if I would have swimming trunks or sunscreen when we arrived. Mom handled that. When I went to school in kindergarten with my Sesame Street lunchbox and thermos in hand, I didn't wonder if I was going to find food on the inside of that box at lunchtime. You know why? My mom 
handled that. <laughs> My mom did so much. She turned in every field trip permission form on time. She got me to every doctor's appointment. She got me to every practice and every game. And all I had to do was rest. Because mom handled that. That's what it looks like to hope in the Lord. David can rest in the Lord like a child with his mother. He's found real rest and real strength and real purpose in knowing and pursuing and serving the Lord and leaving the details and the timeline and the resources in God's very capable hands. And childlike faith is not just for David, right? It's for all of us. It's the only sort of faith that God uses to save people. When God the Son came down to live a perfect life for us and to take God's wrath for us and to die in our place and rise on the third day and prove that He is God and King forever and that His life has been accepted as a payment for our sin, Jesus didn't say, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and keep on worrying. No, he said, come to me, all you are who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is a rest that he gives to those who have childlike faith in him. As Jesus says in Matthew 18, 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, unless you become like weaned children resting in what your mother will provide, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And because childlike faith leads to true soul satisfaction, what should we do as those who have discovered the joy of knowing and belonging to and pursuing the Lord? For those of us that know Him, the final point is found in verse 3. We've got to keep hoping in the Lord, and we've got to urge others to do the same. We keep hoping in the Lord, and we urge others to do the same. As we know, David at times gives us a phenomenal example of trust in the Lord. He shares his experience with us here as an encouragement to all of Israel. But we know David was far from perfect, right? Once he became king, he got distracted. And he sinned in some pretty major ways. For starters, he failed to take his own advice in verse 1. He took his eyes off the Lord and he directed them toward Bathsheba. And that moment of insanity became a mountain of sin that ended in murder. I'm so thankful that David doesn't say in in verse 3, hope in David. He says, hope in the Lord. I'm so thankful he didn't say, hope in your own ability to get it right. He said, hope in the Lord. I'm so glad I don't have to quiet my soul based on my own abilities or my own goodness or my own ability to take the rat race of the world and tune it out. If having a humble heart and an undistracted focus on the Lord was up to me, I would be sunk. I would be doomed, and so would you. But that's not what David calls us to. That's not what the Lord speaking through David calls us to. He doesn't call us to self-trust. He doesn't call us to self-reliance. He doesn't call us to try harder in 2024. He calls us to hope. To wait. To be patient. 
to rest, to persevere, to endure in the Lord. You can't do this unless you are in the Lord. Hope is found in a person, and His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't undo the rat race. You can't get away from your sin. You can't get away from the restlessness without finding your place in the Lord. So the Lord God promised that He was going to come in the person of His Son and make a remedy. So He came down to take your place, to take your sin, to take your death, to take your fretting, to take your worries about what happens when you die, and to give you an assurance that you will be with the Lord. You can hope in the Lord, but to do it, you've got to trust in the promise of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Rest the full weight of your life in the Lord. Like a child who is sleeping while his mom is busy working everything out, hope in the Lord. David calls Israel, a nation called into existence by the Lord, to hope in the Lord of all the people who should hope in the Lord. Israel should hope in the Lord. This should be obvious for Israel, and yet what is so obvious for us, we so easily forget and we chase the distractions of the world. So why does David say it? Because we so easily default to evaluating our lives and our years in terms of stuff that can't save us and will never satisfy our souls. So let's follow David's advice this morning. Let's hope in the Lord. In 2024, no matter what comes, as we navigate the ups and downs of life, as we bear one another's burdens, let's not say to one another, It's going to get better. It's going to get worse. Let's call one another to hope in the Lord. And we do this because the Lord is a promise keeper. David messed up, but Jesus never did. The lion of the tribe of Judah who came in the line of David, who would have God as his father and would possess David's throne forever, has come to take your place. So this morning... On the last day of 23, if your hope is not in the Lord, I urge you with all that I've got, with all that is within me, stop hoping in stuff that can't satisfy. Come to Christ and hope in the Lord. And as our instrumentalists come, as our musicians come, if you know the Lord, but if you're honest with yourself, you've gotten caught up in the rat race of social media and who's got what stuff and you're evaluating your life based on who's got cancer and how good my marriage is and you've forgotten to hope in the Lord, I want to call you, church family, as we begin 2024, to hope in the Lord. Now, do you see it in verse 3? Now and forevermore. God be praised. Would you pray with me? God, our Father in heaven, we need you far more than we realize. And you are more willing to give of yourself than we dare imagine. God, I pray for the, the soul that is in this room this morning that is, that is wayward, that is lost, that is floundering. God, that they might find sustaining real joy, hope, peace in the Lord. And I pray it for their good and the glory of Christ our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. 
We hope to meet you soon.